Let's go back in time to the year 1942 and drop in on a region known for its textile mills and railroads in the northwest corner of South Carolina. There were around 600,000 residents in the 10-county region, historically known as the Upcountry, now referred to as the Upstate, with around a million and a half people calling it home. In 1942, the war was on, and the Greenville Army Air Base was established that summer. The future Interstate 85 was still an old Indian path. The end of segregation was nowhere in sight. Late that June, in Tiny Ware Place, near bordering Anderson County, Mac Arnold was born. His family were sharecroppers, and he was one of 13 children. His older brother, Leroy, built his first guitar using a gas can, broomsticks, and screen wire when his father had left after the harvest season to pick oranges in Florida, and young Mac would play it when Leroy wasn't around. After high school, Mac left home to play with the likes of Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and John Lee Hooker, living in Chicago and Los Angeles. But decades later, he came back to farm life, a stone's throw from where he was born, and eventually to play gas can guitars once more. Welcome to Southern Songs and Stories, and our episode on Mac Arnold. Hey, this is Steve Adams with ALO. This podcast is part of the Osiris Podcast Network. The upstate of South Carolina is now known for tourism, a home for manufacturing and universities, a place that is growing and changing rapidly. It's not all that well known for its music history, but it has a much better claim to fame than you may realize. Do you know any of its artists that went on to national acclaim? Well, we started with Mac Arnold, so you know of one at least. But how many more can you name without looking it up? In the Roots Music end of the spectrum, there are blues greats like Pink Anderson, Carl Fiddlin' Martin, Arthur Jackson, known as Pegleg Sam, Ironing Board Sam, Charles Henry, Baby Tate, and Reverend Gary Davis. Gospel music saw the Dixie Hummingbirds, the Sensational Nightingales, and the Blue Ridge Quartet become nationally known. In bluegrass, Arthur Smith, Don Reno, Bobby Thompson, and electric banjo player Buck Trent were native sons. On the rock and jazz side of things, Hank Garland and Joe Bennett were big stars. These are all artists who preceded or were contemporaries of Mac Arnold and were largely unknown to him because most were not played on local radio. His love of the blues came from listening to WLAC in Nashville, which called itself the nighttime station for half the nation. And indeed, its reach was far and wide, 
Parts of 28 states and three Canadian provinces could pick up its AM signal at night. Radio historians give the nod to WLAC for setting the scene for rock and roll to sweep the nation by the time Mac was graduating from high school and listening to their nightly rhythm and blues shows. After Mac came of age, Marshall Chapman, Uncle Walt's band, Faisu McLean, and Marshall Tucker Band all made a big splash on the charts or with other influential artists or both. Those are not nearly all the notable players to come from the region, but if you're of the mind to explore the region's music heritage, they are a great way to start. But now back to Mac, and I'll let him tell some of his own story in his song with Ghetto Blue, played live at Studio 101. We're going to get the blues man up here. He's played with all the greats, like Tyrone Davis, John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, Big Mama Gordon, a whole bunch of them. He's going to tell you all about it. And then some, please welcome Mr. Mac Arnold. Well, before that, there's a good bit of history, too, because you had a band when you were in high school, and that was J. Floyd and the Shamrocks. That's right. J. Floyd and the Shamrocks. Uh, uh, I ran into him by chance. Uh, I was I just got out of 
middle school and got into high school, and I started going to Greenville, and we're my hometown here. And uh, I ran into him, and once I got out of school, I started playing full time. Uh, we formed a group. We had James Brown and a few other people that became famous afterwards, and uh, uh, I, we was playing R&B at that time. So uh, once I found out the blues, I really fell in love with the blues. So that's what I stuck with all the rest of my life. When you were in Jay Floyd and the Shamrocks, what was a gig like? Where would you go? Well, we'd play around uh, Georgia, a lot of cities around Georgia, and uh, North Carolina, uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, we, we stayed pretty busy every weekend. It had to be, I can't imagine being young in that era in the South. I mean, it's like a different world. Yeah, you know, uh, I had, I grew up on a farm, and uh, getting out in the street like that was a total new thing to me. Uh, everything to me was really exciting because I had, I had not seen very many things that goes on in the city. This song comes from the Mighty Waters Blues Band. It's entitled... Walking through the park. Don't mess 
That's a bit of Mac Arnold and Plate Full of Blues with a Muddy Waters cover played live at Studio 101 in Woodruff, South Carolina. It's a recording studio run by Brad Phillips, where they live stream performances every month. I was impressed with our operation, and you can see some pictures of this session on our social media and our website at southernsongsandstories.com. The fact that Mac Arnold left the South to pursue a career in music should come as no surprise. There were always people leaving small towns for cities to chase their dreams with any number of jobs. If you were discriminated against in the manner that the Arnold family surely was, then traveling north to seek out a better life was another reason to pack it up and go. But if both of those applied to you, and you're a rhythm and blues artist too, then you do like Mac and get on that Greyhound to Chicago. plenty of artists who did not leave, too. While they shared a lot with Mac Arnold musically and culturally, the differences were notable. Mac, being more of a rhythm and blues player than a Piedmont blues guy, made for a much more likely candidate to seek his fortune in a place like Chicago. He came of age in a time when both styles were celebrated. You had the younger generations of electric players breaking new ground, dovetailing with the folk boom in the early 60s, which brought their forebears like Pink Anderson and Reverend Gary Davis, back into the spotlight. Now, the blues is a fountainhead for much of American music, and it finds its way into practically every style or genre. It's so broad and so deep that it is home to a great many musical habitats. Delta blues, hill country blues, Chicago blues, Piedmont blues, West Coast blues, country blues. Those are just some of the styles which would give birth to rock and roll and soul, styles which also would inform bluegrass, jazz, and much more. There is a lot of contrast between the music that Mac played in Chicago and the music the blues players from back home played, and the audiences and venues were a lot different too. To that point, here are parts of my conversations with Plateful of Blues founding member Max Hightower, followed by fellow South Carolinian and blues harmonica player Freddie Vanderford, who came up under the wing of Spartanburg blues great Pegleg Sam. You know, I've been all over, you know, and I've listened to the music up in Chicago. It's got a certain sound, you know, it just, you kind of know. And then you, you, I've been out to California, the West Coast, and it's, it's got a certain sound. While that is, I'm not sure. I hadn't really studied it to the point where I can figure out why does it sound that way. You know, even down in New Orleans, it sounds a little different. You go to Mississippi, you get the Delta stuff, it sounds a certain way. But when you get out to, to South Carolina, and and I guess in North Carolina, for that matter, but really, especially South Carolina, and I don't know why that is. I mean, even even when I was coming up, I can remember going down this little old store, it had like hardwood floors and high ceilings, and it was stored during the week. But on Friday night, they moved they moved stuff out of the way. They bring chairs out, and, and people would bring beer and moonshine or whatever they wanted to bring, and and they'd break out their guitars and. And they'd be playing bluegrass and country, and, and that's just that's just what they did, you know. Um, and luckily, I got to experience some of that. So when you start looking at this area, it's it's not all just blues, and I, I don't even know how you can define blues or how you put it into any 
category because it covers so much, so much territory, you know, because even like Cootie Starks, he was a good friend of mine and he's from here. But when you listen to his music, it sometimes sounds a little, almost a little country at times. Oh, I'm telling you, it was a, it was kind of scary. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, like I said, I've been around a little bit and, but you going out there in the, in the middle of nowhere, there's no yard lights or anything like that. I mean, it's so dark when you cut the car lights off, you can't see your hand in front of you. I first went out there in the afternoon and met with his brother, Bill, introduced myself, and he said Peg had gone somewhere to play or whatever. He'd be back that night to come back that night. I said, I don't want to get shot out here. You know, because I, I don't need to be out here. He said, you're going to be fine. Just come on back. So I came back. And after we got to be friends and playing and stuff like that, you know, he had the one leg and I had access to a car sometimes. So it worked out for both of us. You know, I learned stuff about the harp and showmanship, entertaining. I mean, he was a great comedian also. And I, I learned some of his monologues and things like that. I would take him to places, man, like these card games at night. And I saw straight razors and pistols laying on the table next to people's money. And I'm the only person in there that looks like me, if you know what I'm saying. And uh, But nobody ever bothered me. I never saw a problem, I guess, because of the straight razors and pistols. Nobody got mad and fighting and carrying on. I mean, everything was good. And I could go out there at some of those uh, places to get moonshine. Yeah, I got turned on the moonshine at 16 from Peg. We couldn't drink anything else. We wasn't old enough to buy even beer. You could buy beer at 18 in those days, but couldn't even buy beer. And they had these places out in the country where all the old guys would come there, like on Saturday or whatever, in the afternoon, and drink moonshine, and Peg would play. And if anybody else could play, they'd play too. Well, I was invited to do that because, like I said again, I, I had access to a car, and I could take him to those places. Now, there was one place that all that wasn't allowed. The guy sold milk and butter and moonshine. You just had to go over there and get whatever you were going to get and leave. But the other place, uh, this old guy, Walter Parham was his name, that was the place that everybody hung out and played music and told lies and all that kind of stuff. Tell me, as you hear it, what's the difference between blues from here in our backyard, here in upstate South Carolina, western North Carolina, and other places that you've played? Well, each uh, area has got its own little types of blues, I would I would imagine. I mean, you, you can tell those Texas guys, you know, Lightning Hopkins and people like that. And then uh, my good friend uh, Cedric Burnside, who we've done some shows together, that's R.L.'s grandson, uh, He's going to be in Chester, by the way, next month, and I'm going to be there the following day uh, playing at the Martin Luther King Blues Festival. But Cedric, uh, they got this northern Mississippi hill country blues, they call it. I'm sure you're familiar with the North Mississippi All-Stars and RL and guys like that. Well, that's the type of blues they play there. And then, of course, you got the Delta blues that most people are associated with uh, as far as acoustic, like Robert Johnson and that kind of thing. And then the Chicago guys, I mean, I guess every region has got its own little way of playing blues, but Piedmont blues is is the, the thing for me. That's what I like to hear. 
that's what I like to play. I mean, I'll, I'll play whatever, but that's what I enjoy playing, put it that way, and listening to. Musically, how would you describe it as, what are the bones of Piedmont Blues? Well, on the harmonica, it's mainly rhythm. It's the chugging and the rhythm, and you know, like that. And uh, on, for the guitar players, it's a finger-picking style, kind of like, uh, I kind of like to describe it as some kind of little ragtime type uh, piano or something, but it's done on the guitar. And it's usually more comedy-type uh, songs, things like that, you know, instead of the real serious, you know, dark stuff. I mean, they got you got that, too. But, you know, a lot of these guys, I mean, they played North Carolina and South Carolina, too. They played the tobacco barns in the auctions and things like that, like Sonny Terry. You know, he, he's a Piedmont blues player. They would be out there trying to get gigs, playing for the, you know, when the auction, the tobacco and things like that, and the medicine shows, and you were more likely to get tips, busking, whatever, if you could make them smile or make them laugh about something and forget about the, all that hard work they've done in t- tobacco fields and uh, all that kind of stuff, you're more likely to get some money. Southern Songs and Stories is sponsored by you when you join us as a patron and help keep this series going. More information is on our website at southernsongsandstories.com and our crowdfunding page, patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. Would you take a moment to rate the show and comment on this podcast there? It's one of the easiest and best ways to get more people like you to know about Southern Songs and Stories and the artists we spotlight.
outside? You want a drink of water? Hey, how you call it? That's Arthur Jackson, known as Peg Leg Sam, with Lost John, recorded in 1972. It was the first song he learned, and he would play it often when busking and in Chief Thundercloud's medicine show. Peg is playing two harps there, one with his nose. One of Peg's contemporaries was half the namesake of Pink Floyd and the inspiration for a young Johnny Cash to play guitar without a pick, Pink Anderson. Well, I think there's a playing style that once you've heard it, you know, oh, you know where that's coming from. Uh, so part of it is is the way that people played guitar, uh, certainly the way that people played harmonica. Another part of it is this this kind of dry humor that I found is uh, peculiar to the region. Pink Anderson would do, uh, sometimes he would take songs that were well known, like in the jailhouse now, but he would he would uh, trick them out with, with regional references. You know, he'd say, in, in, he'd say he's in the jailhouse now, and then he'd say he's up on Broad Street now, which is where the jail was in Spartanburg. There are lots of uh, references to certain streets and certain areas. Um, so it was a, especially with Pink, it was a bit of a travelogue. It was a postcard from a place that doesn't exist anymore. I had an old friend named Cam. Cameron used to steal and gamble. He made his living cheating all the while. Yes. I had a game he called Yoka. Blackjack, dice, and poker. He thought he was the smartest dude in town. But I just found out on Monday. Cameron got locked up Sunday. They got him in the jailhouse down in town. They got Camel in the jail. No one to go his bail. That judge, he won't accept no fine. They got him. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. I told Cameron once or twice, stop playing cards and shooting dice. He's up on Broad Street now. He's hard-headed. Paid nobody no mind, but they got him. One thing that strikes me as being different with this region's blues music is uh, sometimes Man, you get down into into some of the Delta Blues stuff, and there's some evil there. Now, it's it is attractive evil. It's it's the kind of evil you you're sort of drawn to. But you know, Robert Johnson will make you uh, think twice about your choices. Piedmont Blues was very welcoming. It was not foreboding at all. It was an inviting music. It was a hey, come on over here and let me tell you a story. It gives you a good feel, and I like to wake up in the morning and put on pink and it puts a smile on your face where 
some blues puts fear in your heart. That was Peter Cooper, author of the book Hub City Music Makers, which was a great resource for this podcast. He is also a musician and serves as senior director, producer, and writer at the Country Music Hall of Fame and Museum. This story might not have been told without artists like Peg, Pink Anderson, Baby Tate, Reverend Gary Davis, and the Dixie Hummingbirds, or at least it would not be the same story. This story would most surely not have been told without Max Hightower, the man who brought Mac back into playing music long after he called it quits and returned home to be a farmer and a truck driver. I guess I was in my early 20s, and I was working with this trucking company as a mechanic, and I had a cassette tape of Muddy Waters. It was called Muddy Mississippi Waters Live. It was playing in the shop while I was working. This guy pulls in the shop. It's a Belk's truck, big, big truck. Shuts the truck off, and he, I think I was like laying up under the truck or something, and he comes walking across the shop, and I could hear the boots tapping. And then he starts singing, and this this uh, this voice was like echoing through the, you know, through the shop. And I slid out from under there, and I looked over there, and there was a guy. I saw cowboy boots, a pair of blue jeans with a perfect crease down the middle, big John Wayne belt buckle, flannel shirt and cowboy hat. So I asked him, I said, you know who that guy is? He said, yeah, I used to play with him. That's Muddy Waters. You know, I was kind of like, well, I said, you play with him? He said, yeah. And I was like, ah. Oh. And I, honestly, I did not believe him. You know, Muddy was such an inspiration on, on me. If that's why I even got in the blues in the first place was when I heard Muddy Waters. And, and I know the influence he's had on so many people. And, and the fact that there's a guy standing in front of me that actually played with Muddy Waters, knowing that there's only a, you know a handful of people that actually played in the Muddy Waters band over the years. When you break it down, so anyway, I just kind of shook it off because I, I I honestly didn't know whether to believe him or not. And every now and then I would see he would come through. You know, every time he'd come out there, I would I would check him, I would test him, I I'd, I'd say, well, hey, you remember this guy and this guy and so and so, and he he remembered all of them. You know, so. And I said, man, maybe he did play with Muddy Waters. So I started looking in the books, and sure enough, I found his name in there. And they shared where he played with uh, Muddy Waters and had recorded uh, live at the Cafe Go-Go with uh, John Lee Hooker and Otis Spann. When I saw that, I was like, man. So I went, the next time he came across, I was like, man, we got to get together. We got to do something. You know, what you doing driving a truck? You know, and so we exchanged phone numbers. But for the next... Um, by the next 10 years, you know, I call him up and we'd, we'd talk a little bit or talk about music. And he said, well, try it. You know, let's, if you get a good band together, maybe we can do something, you know. And so, you know, I would call people up that I knew that I'd play with in the past and whatnot. And they, nobody seemed to have time. Everybody was doing something else or had their own band or whatever. And so I went as far, which I never thought I'd do something like this. I put an ad in the paper or something. Yeah, that's what I did. And I started getting these calls. and it was like a, it's like an interview, and I'd get them on the phone. I said, "Well, you ever heard of Elmore James?" And if they said no, I'd be like, right. "That there wasn't no need to go any further." If you hadn't heard of certain people like, yeah, you know, Elmore James or or, or Little Walter or, or Muddy Waters or, or Junior Wells, if you hadn't heard these names, then it ain't gonna work. I was working for Belk. I was driving truck for Belk, and. Uh... 
one day, well, Belk was leasing their truck from uh, UPS truck lease, and I went one day to uh, get some fuel. I was sitting on the fuel line playing my stereo in the truck, and I was playing blues. And uh, the guy on the, on the fuel line said, hey, it's a guy in the shop, man. He said, he loved playing the blues. You should go in there and meet him and, and see what it's all about. I said, well, I don't have time today, so I'll go in the next time I come to get fuel. So a few days later, I went back to get fuel. And so I parked the truck, went inside. Max was under the truck, and he had his little... Uh, Boombox playing or a song by Muddy Water. So I started singing the song as we were walking back to the back of the shop. And Max rolled out from under the truck and said, Hey man, you know that guy? I said, Yeah, I used to play with him. He said, Oh man. He started walking off like he didn't believe me. So we went we talked a while and I went and got in my truck and I went away. Uh, a few days later, Max called me up. Hey, man, I found some stuff on you, man. I found a magazine with Muddy Waters. I said, your name and everything is in it. He said, man, you don't need to be driving no truck. You need to be playing the blues. I said, no, man, I'm not I'm not ready to get back out on the road anymore. Musicians, I'm fed up with the way musicians are. They won't rehearse. They, can't, they bring their troubles to, to the gig. and uh, It's just devil for me after playing all these years I don't want to go through the same stuff again so he kept calling me he called me off and on for 10 years trying to get me to play music so one day I guess he called me on the right day and I said yes so um, I said Max if you get instrumental and find some musicians uh, that want to be conscientious about the things that they do hey I'm for it so he started looking. Then he contacted me. Him and I was looking for five years. After about 15 years, we got on the road. <laughs> but, but meanwhile, we were rehearsing after we find these, find the guys that we thought would work. And we, we thought we could rent a little place uh, like a self-storage building and rehearse in there. Eventually, they found the right players, with Austin Brazier joining them on guitar And for this session, Scotty Hawkins on drums. Mac had come full circle in his musical journey, and it was quite a journey. From his home in South Carolina to Chicago and then to Los Angeles, which we haven't even touched on yet, and eventually back home to retire from music and then to be pulled back into it. We've only scratched the surface of Mac's story. Here's one of the highlights of his catalog from the mid-1960s when he played bass for John Lee Hooker, on the Live at the Cafe Agogo album. My next tune, she longs, she tall, she weeps like a willow tree. Every time she loved me, 
said, I have heartaches, I have blues. No matter what you got, the blues is there. Because that's all I know, the blues. And I can sing the blues so deep until you can have this room full of money and I can give you the blues. John Lee Hooker played blues like no one and his musical vision was sharp. His blues was rooted in the Delta, but Mac has the musical dexterity to compliment him quite well and work in his own touches along the way. So we go forward a little bit. You played with Muddy for about a year and a half, is that yes, right? Yes, that is correct. And then you had, around that same time, met Don Cornelius? That is correct. Uh, I, I had a, I formed a group in Chicago called Soul Invaders. And uh, when, we, when I wasn't playing for someone else, I would, you know, hire my own group someplace around Chicago, and that would keep us playing all the time. But uh, I met Don Cornelius through WVON radio station in Chicago, and Don was, uh, it was a fundraiser for the radio station, and my group was a backup group, R&B backup group in Chicago. So most of the time, uh, he would have a lot of people come in from Motown uh, to perform uh, for his fundraisers. So we would back up a lot of the people out of Motown there in, in Chicago. So Don decided that he wanted to uh, do a dance show, and it ended up being Soul Train. Well, he did a pilot in Chicago, and he wanted to take it to uh, Hollywood. So when he went to Hollywood, he set up everything and came back to Chicago, and uh, I decided that uh, I wanted to go and, and work with him on Soul Train. So I asked him one day if it's possible that I could uh, get a spot as a staff member on Soul Train. And he said, I don't see no reason why not, because we've been working together for a few years now, so, hey, man, you all right with me? So I moved to Los Angeles and, uh, in 1970, and he brought the show to Hollywood in 1971. So I did the show with him from 1971 to 1975 as a, an associated producer.
If you were around in the 1970s, you will know that song, the theme from Soul Train, the Gamble and Huff composition performed by TSOP, the sound of Philadelphia. And here's another piece of culture from the 1970s that Mac had a hand in when he played bass on this Quincy Jones tune. bit of the street beater. You may know it as the theme to the TV show, Sanford and Son. This was a period of transition for Mac. Uh, I was going to college and uh, uh, to do videotape. And I learned the fundamentals of radio and learned how to do videotape editing. And, then I, and from time to time, I would do freelance work doing videotape editing and uh, recording from uh, cameras and the, the whole smear. Uh, I worked for ABC Television Network at uh, Prospect in Hollywood, uh, which is the, it's the L.A. Uh, address. And I worked for 20th Century Fox at Deluxe General uh, running the film chain transferring film to videotape for them. So I was all over the place. I worked for AMA uh, with Sandy McIntyre's Enterprises and Compact Video uh, Technicolor. I was all over the place. Uh, I I was just being adventurous. (laughs) Eventually, Mac was called to return to South Carolina. His mother was in bad health and he went back to care for her in the farm. It was the 1980s, and blues music had changed. There were some torchbearers you could hear on the radio, like Stevie Ray Vaughan, Fabulous Thunderbirds, George Thorogood, Robert Cray, and Bonnie Raitt, although Raitt finally achieved nationwide success only after shifting her sound far away from that of artists like Sippy Wallace, who inspired her early on. The days of the folk boom in the early 60s, when America rediscovered its roots and celebrated blues music from Delta to Piedmont to the newer electrified sounds from places like West Side Chicago, those days were long gone. Muddy had passed. Peg Leg Sam, Pink Anderson years before him. The taste of the day had largely moved on, and Mac had no real plans to make a go of a music career again. As well known as he was in many circles in music and television, he would have even still had connections in Washington, D.C. after having worked on Jimmy Carter's election campaign. He was not a household name, and could live in relative obscurity in the place where he grew up. All the tours he had been on, all the records he had played on, were known mostly to fans of those artists and people who bought the albums. And since you couldn't look things up on a search engine back then, it was bound to stay that way. Until that lucky day, when he pulled his truck in to get refueled and heard muddy waters being played in the shop by a young mechanic named Max Hightower. Being a blues player was practically foreordained for Max, as you'll hear in this intro from the band's performance at Studio 101. I'll be real quick, brief. Uh, actually, the this is not the actual mason jar, but uh, my my grandmother, my grandmother was uh, she she was left on the front porch of a liquor house down in Greenville when she was uh, yeah when she when she was born, and uh, I know that's the blues, right? 
And um, the lady that raised her, Janie Powers, man, she, uh, um, you know, she raised her up in, in that liquor house. And, well, and I found all this out by doing like, some research. And I, I found out where the house used to be. And I started digging around back there. And I looked and I found this old, old dirty mason jar. So that's the only thing I got left of my grandmother's, that old mason jar. So uh, one, one day we were doing a gig and uh, I, I told the story a little more in depth. And, and uh, I, I said something about the mason jar being empty. And, and I set it on the stage you know, for tips, and, and we made about, I don't know, $80 or something, I don't know, <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I just kept, I kept doing it, man, I was like, <laughs> too, too, too bad they ain't a, uh, a tip jar on Facebook, I don't know, <laughs> you can just bring it to my house, <laughs> but anyway, that's kind of the story. Mac is also a staunch advocate for music and arts education in nearby schools, and in 2005 formed the I Can Do Anything Foundation, which benefits the schools through his Cornbread and Collard Greens festivals, which both raise money for the schools and also feature student musicians and choirs on stage. 
Right now, we need volunteers. The foundation is doing very well. Uh, we do concerts every year to support the, the foundation, and it's uh, the Mac, Dr. Mac Arnold's Cornbread and Collard Greens Blues Festival. We do uh, about nine different shows a year to support the festival. And our most famous one is Key Largo, Florida, in the second week of May every year. We're almost at the close of our show. This is Joe Kendrick saying thanks for listening, and I encourage you to spread the word about this independent project and consider helping by subscribing, rating, and commenting on the show where you get your podcasts. And by becoming a patron, you can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter at South Scenes, and on Instagram at South Stories. Plus, our podcasts are available on practically every platform there is. You can find out more about Mac Arnold on his website at macarnold.com. There was so much of our many conversations that did not make it into this episode that I will bring a lot of that to light in a future episode focusing more on Piedmont blues and South Carolina artists. This is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it. Such a great day today. Sun shining. Everybody feeling good. Streets are full of people. You all think we need any more people in Greenville, South Carolina? <laughs> it's a no more now. <laughs> We're about full of people in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a great place, you all are. If you haven't been to Greenville, you gotta check it out sometimes and you'll love the city. We have another little song right here from Mac Arnold and Plate Full of Blues is entitled Train Smoke.
I'll tell you one little thing. This has got nothing to do with blues, but just about growing up in the South. Uh, I did a show with Billy Bob Thornton, the actor, and, you know, we were hanging out, having a few laughs and stuff like that. Well, he's got, you know, I wasn't going to talk about Sling Blade or something like that, like everybody in the world probably does to him when they meet him. And, well, a real obscure movie, a guy was in a car wreck, and he kept saying, they try, they got to prize me out of there. They have to prize me out of there. And I've heard that all my life. So I just said that to Billy Bob, and he says, well, you know, it's kind of funny. Uh, that was a good one. But he said, I had him cracked up the other day. Somebody was taking a pair of scissors somewhere, and I said, don't job yourself with it. I've heard that all my life. It's great to have you on, Mac. Thank you so very much, Joe. It's so wonderful to still be alive. <laughs> <laughs>